Bee Therapy. Conversations about bees with Patrice Newell and Danny Lloyd Pritchard. Today, as usual, we start off with a quiz. We're going to be talking about one of our favourite books, sort of philosophy of beekeeping, a bit of a discussion about PPE, as Danny calls it, um, honey marinades. Very good. It's our special recipe. So fire away, Danny. What's the quiz question? The question is, when did European honeybees first arrive in Australia? Bit of guessing going on, I can imagine there. We'll come back to that at the end of our episode. Our book this week is a very, very special one that Danny and I have really loved. It's a book close to our heart. It's called Toward Saving the Honeybee by Gunther Hauk. Now, when did you read that? Tell us why you love that book. I love this book because it was relevant to my early days of beekeeping. Like I said, initially I was studying through the Steiner School where my children were attending And we were looking at the lectures on bees written by Rudolf Steiner. And we also approached other aspects of beekeeping and Towards Saving the Honeybee was recommended to us to read. It's only a small book. It's a Mm. pocket-sized book. It's only about 80 pages long. And it's absolutely full of information on, like you said earlier, the philosophy of beekeeping. But it delves into some of the current issues facing bees and beekeepers around the world. Mm, To draw us into having a more natural approach, to think of beekeeping from the point of view of the bee. If we really love bees, we have to treat bees with love and clearly there's been quite a lot of abuse. The book came out in 2002. Uh, It's as good today to me as before. I don't know about your edition, but there's only one weird thing in it. There's black and white photos and colour photos, very good photos, but some of them are repeated. So I think that's a bit weird. But I love the way the kindness, the gentleness, the focus on observation, so that particularly if you're thinking about beekeeping or you might have an item, will I, won't I get a beehive, it really does draw you in to the love, fascination and the responsibility of being a livestock owner, manager, you know, which is what we really are. And keeping that view in the back of your head as while you're also learning the technical things, is it's important not to lose sight of it. No, I I love the way he draws the analogies with some of the current crises in the world. So even though this was written in the early 2000s, he talks about how crises can be a good thing. And we are going through a crisis right now, as we're aware, with the pandemic. So the analogy's there. And the response to that crisis is fascinating to watch. And it's incredible to see how we've been able to take action in a short amount of time where ordinarily we would have thought that was impossible to do. You know, if there is a crisis, we can come together as a global community and put in place actions that can work to solve the problem. Which a little bit was Bill McKibben in his book talking about if you could just take some lessons from the beehive and draw them into your other activities in your life. Yes. Yes. So it awakens our consciousness. Yes. So I, I would call it a philosophical book. Definitely. Quite a lot of scientific data too about processes, which was was interesting. 
He's critical of the pollination industry requirements where so much pressure is being put on bees. So for those that don't know, you know, there are a lot of beekeepers who really only do pollination. That's their main trade. So they're managing the bees specifically for that. And sometimes it might mean just feeding them sugar and then driving thousands of kilometres. So it's not a good diet to start with. They have a lot of travel involved. It's not really natural to the bee, even though the bee does a damn good job when it's put with all these crops. He talks a lot about the rhythms of the beehive, the seasonality of beekeeping and the stresses and symptoms that we're now seeing of pests and diseases within the beehives as all being a reflection of the treatment of the bees and the state of the earth's ecosystems Mm -hmm. and the crisis that we're in. Mm -hmm. So he recommends that as a beekeeper, there are certain things we can do to reinvigorate our colonies, to bring back that life to the bees, to allow them to do certain things that they would naturally do to almost self-medicate. Like swarming. You've got it. (laughs) Like swarming, which you can imagine when I read that, I thought a lot of people are not going to be tuned into that. But accepting what the bee needs to facilitate their health, it's wise, wise words. It is. Now, he's meant to be doing um, or still looking after what he calls a bee sanctuary. Yes, he's still alive. Yeah. In in the US now, doing it in the US. So I've never been there, but certainly interesting idea. And I just love the idea of someone dedicating their life to the care of the bee. Gunda Hauk, it's spelt H-A-U-K, towards saving the honeybee. Now, I have to ask you about your bee suit. I've been meaning to ask you because I don't know. I've got a cotton one. I haven't moved into those awful plastic ones. What about you? Where are you? Okay, I started with the cotton. I was receiving many, many stings through the cotton and it was distracting me from the work I had to do at my hives. So I actually moved towards the ventilated triple layer, like you said, plastic or rubber bee suits. I haven't been stung through those suits at all, but there are certain things you have to be aware of. I wear a full suit, so, you know, like long overalls, Mm -hmm. long legs, long arms. And I do that because I also don't like to get honey and wax and propolis all over my clothes. So you can wear just a jacket, but I choose to wear the full suit. But the triple layer actually allows my skin to breathe. So I can actually get away with just wearing swimmers underneath my bee suit in summer. Oh, I was going to ask you, what are you wearing under, what were you wearing under the cotton? Well, were you naked under that bee suit? Because I wear cotton and I never have been. I get stung usually on my nose when I open the hive if I'm not really careful not to have the veil right at my nose. Okay, so there's something you could do to prevent that, Uh, Patrice. You could wear a cap. Yeah, paying a (laughs) bit more attention. But see, I'm so overexcited when I'm opening up that beehive. Okay, what about gloves? Are you wearing gloves all the time? Yes, the majority of times I wear a glove. You have to understand when you get stung by a bee, you then have to stop what you're doing and remove that sting. So if you're in a delicate situation, you might be trying to hold the queen or, you know, you're manipulating the brood and you you want to be careful. I always choose gloves, except if I'm marking queens. There are certain jobs you have to do when you're working your hives. So do you mark all your queens in your hive? 
I'm very impressed. Oh, I haven't all. said yes yet. <laughs> Not all. There are times I will, though, especially if I'm helping other friends out and they want to be able to spot their queen. It's a lot easier if she's been marked. But the majority of times I'm wearing gloves and I find now I'm not even using the leather bee gloves. I've just gone for disposable washing up gloves. They're, they're cotton lined and they're rubber on the outside. You can still get stung through gloves. So it, I don't want people to think that PPE 100% protects you from bee stings. Nothing will. You will always get stung. And I do get stung regularly, even through my gloves. Not all sting, stings are equal, though, because you can get that short prick where the sack of the venom hasn't quite gone, but you feel the sting. Yes, which is why if your bee suit is a little bit baggy as opposed to pulling tight across your shoulders, your arms or your legs, um, even if you do get stung, just standing up or moving the cloth away will pull the sting out of your skin and you won't get the full dose of the venom. I mean, you don't really want to be stirring your bees up and getting stung, but it is an occupational hazard of beekeeping. And unfortunately, sometimes it will happen. You'll squash a bee accidentally as you're putting the lid on or pulling the lid off or putting oh, frames back And get in, stung. And you will get stung. I, I would say... Besides the, the many nose stings. thing, I don't know. You're trying to get your nose a bit too close to the hive. What are you doing? That bee therapy there, Patrice. Yes. It's funny. I have been stung on my nose many times now. Uh, the worst one, actually, and I, I was just walking by my hive, probably being a bit too nosy. I got stung once on my um, temple. I was a bit upset about that because it was a bit too close to everything. I thought in case it came up really badly, but it didn't. It was almost like a warning. You're like, you were here last week. What are you doing back? You're not going to open the hive again, are you? I wasn't. I was just looking because I was just trying to see if they were bringing in pollen. But you're you're correct. Most of the time that I have been, it's it's a lazy accident. It's a lazy be around, and you might it might be even on you, and you've mm. taken a jacket off, and you didn't know there was a bee there. Yeah. That sort of thing. They don't want to sting you. It's usually mm. yeah something we've done. Is it true, do you think, that bees don't sting as much at the end of the season? Do you think that's they're true? They're fairly busy that time of the year. It's autumn, you know, they're, they're hunkering down, they're filling their stores ready for winter. Yeah, so they're not feeling you as a threat. They as don't much. have as much brood to be defending as well. Hmm. And those bees want to persist through winter. So would you say as a general rule you'd have less stings in autumn than spring? I haven't noticed that in Australia, yeah. to be honest, mm. not with my hives. I thought that was an interesting thing and I, I haven't noticed it. That's why I wondered with you. Now, I do want to talk about a, one of my special recipes. There's a cookbook that I received at the farm. It's called 200 Years History of Australian Cooking. And it's by Tess Malos and Ellen Argrio, two Greek cooking writers. It's an absolutely fabulous book. One of those books that I probably had been given to me, I probably wouldn't buy because it's really a history cooking book. They term early terminology in the glossary at the back. They said in the in the early days, bee jam was the word they used. Not honey. For honey. Bee jam. Bee jam. It must have been tea tree honey. It must have been jelly bush honey <laughs> they were using. The crappy stuff the beekeepers couldn't get rid of in the early days. I guess it, you could say it might, may have been a cookbook that was written for tourists to buy with the history of Australian cooking, but it was broken up into countries. So there's a section on USA, and in that USA there was a recipe for ribs. Now, I am not a person who identifies with barbecuing ribs, but this 
recipe I have tried and I have cooked it regularly every year for over 30 years and every single time I've done it I've now put it on mainly lamb chops but because I don't do ribs but it can work on any meat I say this to you because I know you primarily eat vegetarian honey is the key ingredient so I'm going to read you out the the list so olive oil onion garlic you fry it you add a half a cup of tomato puree two tablespoons of tomato paste three tablespoons of vinegar, I always use apple cider vinegar, a teaspoon of dried thyme or fresh thyme, four tablespoons of honey, half a, st- a half a cup of stock, a half a cup of Worcester sauce, half a teaspoon of dried mustard. Now you cook it, but it is the vinegar, the honey and the thyme that all sort of comes together in this marinade and then you put the chop or the meat out in a baking dish and pour the cooked marinade sauce over it. So it caramelises with the honey and then it goes on. And when you take the chops out or the meat out, it's really coated with that beautiful glaze that you get um, with the meat. So I suppose I always look for things where I think honey is a feature, where that recipe would not work without the honey. So the honey is the stickiness and the sweetness. I think that could work with tofu. I think that marinade, we could definitely put a firm tofu in there, marinate it overnight and then barbecue it. Like make kebabs, tofu kebabs. I'm tasting it. My mouth is drooling. I'm getting so hungry. So try that and we can have a talk about whether that can work on other things. I've never done it with vegetables because I think of it as meat. Yeah, as related to meat. Okay, let's go back to that important question. When did the European honeybee arrive in Australia? Would you like me to tell you? Okay. I think you, I think you know more about this than me, so <laughs> fire away, please. Okay. The, it's interesting, the history of European honeybees arriving in Australia. There were a couple of attempts before it actually succeeded. So in 1805 and in 1810, there were attempts made to bring out European honeybees from England to Australia they didn't survive the journey. But in 1821, 10 colonies of European honeybees... 1821? 1821, 10 colonies were packed on a ship called the Isabella in Ireland and they sailed for 17 and a half weeks directly to Sydney Cove. When they got to Sydney, they hadn't stopped anywhere, so these 10 colonies had to survive on that ship for 17 and a half weeks, they arrived on the 19th of March, 1822. There were still four colonies alive out of the 10 and they were placed in the Hyde Park area. This is prior to the everyday hive that we're used to using now, the Langstroth beekeeping hive. Okay, let me say that because I think that is such a tongue twister, the Langstroth Okay. Yes, Lorenzo <laughs> Langstroth, Langstroth was the inventor yeah. of the common beehive that we use today where you have the removable frames. I'm not sure. I can't find a description of what these beehives looked like when they came out on the ships, but they would not have had the removable frames that the mm. Langstroth hive has. So it could have been in the traditional skeps. It may have been in some sort of clay pot. We're not sure. They obviously could not be released when they're on the boat. So they're eating their own stores. I mean, imagine if you had to release them on the boat and you're sitting 10 feet away eating jam on toast. 
Wouldn't the bees just want to go for it? Yeah, you'd have a robbing event. Yeah. They would they would just be triggered with all that sugar and they you wouldn't be able to stop them. So they must have been fed up, surely. They must have had a way of feeding the bees, remembering they've left Ireland in winter. So traditionally, the they, bees would have been clustered so down. They're, they're, they would have had a nice supply of hmm. honey in their hive. They wouldn't be expecting to go anywhere. No, but as they approached the shores of Australia, the temperature would have been increasing and they would have landed here. March, still quite warm. But they March. must have thought that when they you know, travelled across the equator. Well, they've had two thought... attempts before this, so they must have been working on a system of being able to keep the hives alive. They wouldn't have been in a great state, but they managed. Four out of ten hives did survive, and look at what's happened from four colonies. They are now in every state and territory of Australia, mm. hundreds of thousands of beehives, not to mention they're the managed ones, not to mention the feral colonies mm. that are out there. So incredible feat. Yes, so when we say the honeybee, the honeybee is a European bee. There were not honeybees either in the United States. So they've come around the world. Look, you know, it's fascinating to think they must have been quite small, those hives. They must have been. They actually say what race of bee it was. So they said it was the black English German bee, which is Apis mellifera mellifera. And it wasn't until... 1862 that they introduced the golden Italian bee that we're very familiar with. They look so beautiful, those golden <laughs> bees, the Italian bees. They've got a lovely nature too and they're very productive. They are, they are. Mm. They're, they're the of brown really, aren't they? So they, <laughs> you know, all the chooks are productive. They like, they like them because they're productive. Same with the Italian. I've had a lot of Italian queens over the years that I've thought are not that productive. I thought I'm really, I've really just gone for beauty here. Okay, they were not Italian bees. They were black German bees. Mm. Only four. So that's only four queens. Yes. Right? Only four queens until they could get more queens. I mean, wow, those queens deserve a medal, huh? <laughs> well, they obviously bred up, you know, yeah. adapted to their... their and they developed a, a taste for eucalypts. Never tried it before. And, and to think um, whoever was looking after those hives, what a skilled beekeeper that one or who, however many beekeepers must have been. And what a responsibility. Mm. Huh? Amazing. Yeah. yeah, Great story. Great yeah. story. So the big question here is why did our early settlers feel the need to introduce European honeybees to Australia? Well, that's one of the crazy things really because they clearly didn't know we had native bees. They obviously word hadn't spread around that you can actually get honey from native bees must have been more to do with pollination, but we're not sure about that. We're not really sure. I suspect they were aware of the stingless bees and the sugar bag honey that does come from those stingless bees. You know, the, the local Aboriginals would have been harvesting and consuming that honey, but it doesn't produce a lot. And so they might have, might have been looking at that and going, well, yeah, we have these native bees but they don't produce enough honey. And, and they were so used to their homeland and the food that they consumed there, they wanted to replicate that back here in Australia. They wanted the same as what they had back at but home. But that's what's so interesting because each honey is dependent upon the flowers where they're getting the nectar. And so, well, you wouldn't get the same honey, would you? Because the flowers are so different here. But if you were establishing the crops that they have in yes. Europe... You would be wanting the same bees to pollinate those crops for seed. 
So they were probably just replicating their farming practices and going, well, we always had bees for these crops. We need to bring the bees over here. And we always had tubs of honey and we just can't get it from the local bees. So let's bring them in and see how they go. I wonder if they thought about the uh, interbreeding with the native bees. They've only got four hives that have survived, four Apis mellifera queens, yeah, mixing without bees. So what if there was a bit of, you know, mm. interspecies sex happening here? No? Fortunately, that doesn't appear to have happened <laughs> with our native bees. Yeah. But there's certainly questions being raised now as to the competitiveness of the European honeybees with our native bees. Um, competition for resources and in our wild areas, competition for nesting sites. Yes. So, And there's questions now about the impact on pollination of some of our native plants, that maybe the European honeybee isn't pollinating our native plants accurately enough to produce a viable seed. So there are a lot of questions about the impact, but it's been over 200 years, close to 200 years. There's a lot we'll never know. But what I do know, having studied my bees in my backyard and my local environment, is that I can have both and they're coexisting together. So they've reached some level of acceptance and balance. And I've even had our native stingless bees, which I keep colonies of them, go and rob the honey out of the European honeybee colonies in my backyard. In fact, my native stingless bees will walk in the entrance because they're only tiny. They're like a little black ant and go and help themselves. And the European honeybees just let them go. Really? So they're quite happy for them to do that. They appear to be coexisting. The okay. only time I have seen a little bit of argy-bargy between our honeybee, European honeybees and the native bees is when we've had, it's mainly in autumn, when they're really desperate to get the stores, you know, they're, they're trying to pack down for winter, just fill their hives as, as much as possible. And you may have seen the large native bees, they call them teddy bear bees. They're bigger than the European honeybees and they're these gorgeous orange-brown coloured bees, really fluffy. They're very clumsy in flight and very noisy. And they'll go around and connect, collect heaps of nectar. And if they see a honeybee, say, on a paperbark flower or a grevillea or a banksia, they'll just knock those honeybees out of the way to get to that flower. So, yes, there can be a little bit of aggression there between the natives and the Europeans, but they're, they're coexisting okay. It's fascinating you telling me that story. I had one of the most shocking um, meetings at the Australian Museum years ago where one of the scientists said to me, oh, what do you do on your farm? And I said, well, at the time, cattle, olive, olive trees and bees. And it was like, oh my God, Patrice, you know, these three horrible products, you know, destroying the landscape of Australia. And and really put me to shame, like, oh, you know, honeybees, wrecking it for all our native bees. And he was just very dismissive. I completely lost cred in one second by saying that I was in the agriculture sector, you know, producing three products of, in his view, no value. But it has spoken to me a lot about how much we share our resources and how much we want to give to the native animals and not the introduced animals. Uh, but of course, honeybees exist in our national parks. They do. They've, they've found their way into national parks. 
as a beekeeper, there's very few beekeepers that actually have apiary sites within national parks. They used to, and slowly that's changing. And you need to actually apply for a licence effectively to use a public site for your apiary. And they don't want them in New South Wales in national parks. So you can have your bees close to the national park on the border, but we don't really want them inside the national parks. Yes, they are there, but they have been shown to compete with our native animals for those nesting sites, the hollows in the trees. So it's that natural swarming event that the all bees, or healthy bee colonies yeah, and will go where they want. They will find their own home. But tell me, we've both walked in national parks. Hey, I've seen a bee in a national park. Yeah, I have. Until recently, I went into some of the burnt national parks after our devastating bushfires and the only bees I saw were native. I didn't see any European honeybees, yet I had seen them in those exact national parks prior to the, the bushfires. So they're susceptible to climatic conditions as well, but a lot of our native bees burrow in the ground and I suspect they survived those fires because their nest sites were below ground, not in the hollows in the trees. Mm, mm. Interesting. Great to chat, bee buddy. As always. You've been listening to Bee Therapy. See you next time. Bye. Bye.